Hi, everyone. I'm Colby Horton. And I'm Frank Yamada. And we'd like to welcome you to another episode of Engaging in the Next, an original podcast from Association Briefings where we talk about what's next for the association community when it comes to technology, Marcom strategy, people, membership, and money. Well, we just got back from ASAE. What a fantastic event. I could not agree more. And by the sound of my voice or, or lack thereof, uh, you know, I had a great time. And don't you always? I mean, for those those who weren't at ASAE, again, Frank managed to make it to the, the front row spot for the opening night of TLC. I mean, was there ever a doubt I wasn't going to do that? I, I was destined to live out my middle school days, and TLC did not disappoint. Y'all, Frank was in full-on fanboy mode. I'm, I'm pretty sure he worked on his 90s dance moves in the, in, in the hotel, you know, just hours before the event. So, Frank, what's your favorite TLC song? Are you more of a Waterfalls or, or a No Scrubs kind of guy? They're all pretty big hits. I would say Waterfalls. I mean, I remember that music video came out, so still a lot of nostalgia there. I think Frank was one of those with the cell phone with his flashlight on, rocking back and forth. I was definitely doing the shoulder shrug from the music video. <laughs> it was not liquid form, but close enough. <laughs> I can't tell you how many people told me that the first CD they owned was Crazy Sexy Cool. It's kind of cool. Um, I mean, talk about bringing a community of fans together. Uh, nice job, ASAE. And that's really always been my favorite part of the event. You know, it brings together a community of association executives, allowing them to share ideas, participate in some career advancing education, catching up on what's happened over the last year, and, and learning about new solutions and new travel destinations. I mean, Atlanta definitely didn't disappoint this year. So in this episode of Engaging in the Next, we're devoting it to community and the idea of community organizing. I mean, Frank, you've definitely seen this concept in action. Community organizing is a process by which members of an association come together to collectively address issues, solve problems, just create positive changes within their industry. It involves building relationships, uh, mobilizing resources, and just empowering community members to work collaboratively towards a shared goal. And we have a great guest on the podcast today to talk about this idea and why it's so important to associations. So Frank, who do we have on the show? Cool, but today we welcome Molly Lewis to the podcast. Molly is the Chief Executive Officer for the Kentucky Primary Care Association, which is a membership organization dedicated to promoting access to high quality, equitable, primary health care to the underserved in Kentucky. KPCA members include federally qualified health centers, rural health clinics, and other primary care providers. Now, Frank and I have seen firsthand how this idea of community organizing begins and progresses. So I'm really looking forward to hearing how it's really starting to benefit KPCA. So welcome to the podcast, Molly. How are you? We're doing great. Good. Glad to have you on. Uh, we're looking forward to the conversation here. I think we'd like to start just kind of hearing about your story. How'd you get involved in the association community, particularly with the Kentucky Primary Care Association? Sure. If you'll give me a second, I think it probably goes back a little bit longer than my early employment. I wanted to be a special education teacher and went to college to get that degree. And when I was in the classroom with the students, I realized how much time the teachers were spending filling out paperwork or IEPs 
for the educational plans for the students. And it seemed like a lot of bureaucracy to me. And I didn't want to do it. And I knew that that wasn't the type of way that I could impact the lives that I wanted to impact. So I ended up changing my degree to a psychology degree and decided to go to Washington, D.C. afterwards and worked on the Hill for a senator from Kentucky where I learned how laws are made and then the process between when a law is made all the way down to how it impacts individuals. So meeting with the constituents to hear how it feels in their daily life was a really a helpful way to understand how to advise the senator on particular issues. So I liked it. And I went to law school here in Kentucky and ended up going into administrative law, which has to do with interpreting regulations, which are kind of the way that the laws impact people's lives or businesses. And it was particularly in healthcare law and a lot of reimbursement issues, licensure, compliance, fraud and abuse, those sorts of things, which led me here in Kentucky. We have a lot of providers serving underserved communities, and most of them are classified as either rural health clinics or fairly qualified health centers. So I got to know some of my first clients, the whole patient model of care in underserved communities and how it's reimbursed and how it's governed and function. Later, I went to work for a governor here in Kentucky as policy director and learned how the state works to write the regulations that impact individuals. And so it was a different perspective or a different side of the same coin. And it kept coming back to these primary care providers as a real opportunity to help change the lives and create access to health care. I received a call to ask to come work for the Kentucky Primary Care Association. And it turned out that a lot of my former clients were our members. And so it made sense to instead being attorney, you know, billing hours, I could work to be their advocate collectively and work together to help create the framework or the landscape here in Kentucky for them to be successful. I think that that is where I became interested in the KPCA was kind of a collective membership where there were these unifying principles of how they operated, but then they really were different or there were distinctions in the types of communities working together here at the Primary Care Association. We're one of 52 national organizations that are funded in part by the Bureau of Primary Health Care who support federally qualified health centers. And so we're here as the service provider, technical assistance, training, whatever's necessary for them to be successful. The neighborhood community health center kind of model has been around for a long, long time, and it's been proven to work. But in recognizing that, I believe that the federal government also realized that they need support and that they need to be subsidized not only in funding, but also in extensions of their resources and services. And that's where we come in to help convene, gather, create economies of scale, policy developments, working together with the Department for Medicaid Services or the governor's office or public health to kind of help take the load off so that they can take care of patients. And speaking of working together, association members often come together in times of need. He talked to us about a time when KPCA mobilized to provide resources to members in need. Sure. Early in my days at the Primary Care Association, probably one of the most pivotal moments in me learning how to develop as a leader of the organization was almost a, a year ago today when the floods hit eastern Kentucky and streams turned into rivers roaring through many of our eastern Kentucky towns and many of our communities. And it was almost the size of Rhode Island that was impacted by the floods. And they came out of nowhere and destroyed a lot of people's homes and roads, cars, 
many of the things that we take for granted. And so quickly we operationalized and we realized that we could be nimble and work together and that our members wanted to support each other. So we were able to fund projects, you know, go to Costco and get U-Hauls and deliver whatever was needed in order to help our members serve their patients. Because just like a patient would show up at a health center or a rural health clinic for a health need, in these times of disaster, they showed up too, because they kind of realized that there was a trusting community-based center stone that if it could provide healthcare needs, it could probably find you know, basic human needs as well. So people showed up for water or showers or tetanus or whatever they needed. And it was demonstrated that if we provided the resources there, people would know to access them there. And so we ran through pallets upon pallets, like a distribution center to help until we were able to kind of stabilize and then work on the next step of emergency response. Molly, tell a little bit the story of how your KPCA staff helped put all this together to help distribute the goods during this time of need. Yeah, good question, Colby. Everybody just rose to the challenge. You know, our HR director and our controller, they were driving the U-Hauls. Our member service director was tracking down pallets of water. And then we had several of our team that actually live in eastern Kentucky. And even though their homes were compromised, they were still out and about on their personal, not a side-by-side, but it's kind of like a four-by-four delivering goods when roads had been destroyed. So everybody really stepped up. And I think that it was nice for our team, who oftentimes are a couple steps removed from the patients, to be able to be involved and more connected with the communities that we serve. I think it's a story of associations and association staff. I think that everyone who works in the association space is there to help a community of members, of businesses, et cetera. And I think that this is a a perfect example of the true calling of an association staff right there. So I I love that story. I I think it definitely needed to be shared with the listeners. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's also just a real part of what we do in connecting needs to resources. And that's probably a theme that transpires through everything that we do. So our individual team members, the way that they were able to stand up and say, hey, I know this guy and he has a forklift and he can help unload the truck. Or I know somebody who has a water trailer in Western Kentucky. I'll go get it and bring it to Eastern Kentucky. So there was a lot of people working within their own circles in order to find the resources that were needed. And we were actually able to meet them long before the National Guard or the state was able to mobilize just because we were nimble and we had ready, willing and eager individuals who really cared. Exactly. And I think this is a great segue into community organizing. While it's not the the same type thing, it is a matter of mobilizing those circles within the association to help with a cause, as we kind of discussed a little bit in the intro. So let's talk a little bit more about community organizing. How can community organizing benefit associations and their members? And what specific advantages does it offer over other forms of engagement and advocacy? So I would think that we're not alone as an association who has policy development and advocacy as part of our services because we have a large stakeholder group. And so it's nice for when organizations or government agencies want to know kind of how something will land to get our perspective. It's oftentimes, I believe, that policy or when you have a legislative director and a kind of a part of your team developed specifically to government relations, it starts to focus on an agenda and pushing an agenda. 
And what we were able to do is take a step back and say, instead of an agenda, let's start with relationships. Let's start with our communities. While there are lots of things in common in terms of the systems within which our members operate, they all serve individual communities. And so they've said it once, they've said it a million times. You've seen one healthcare provider, you've seen one healthcare provider. So what did we need to do to take a step back and work within the communities that our members serve? And the reason why that's so important is because the people in those communities are the patients, they're the workforce, they're the family. There's so many relationships that go back to a health center or a provider of healthcare services in a community. They really are a keystone. And so we thought, let's go back to the relationships and let's see where there are points of commonality, where there are shared values, and let's build upon that. And then once we were able to use our relationships, then we could start to say, well, what's our shared purpose? And then what with what's our shared purpose, what would make this look like success and how to build a campaign where collectively we can work together, but the impact and the way in which you can reach that goal will start at the grassroots. Yeah. And let's make it clear for the listeners too, while community organizing is really key to healthcare organizations or healthcare associations, the idea of community organizing certainly works regardless of the industry that you're serving. Am I correct there? Yeah. So let me take a step back. Is that okay? Absolutely. Yeah. Just to make it a little bit more clear. Associations you know, represent a collective and they are a pretty strong, large stakeholder group. But each member of that association has their own communities. And so it's nice to have a different approach where you start at the grassroots level with the communities that are served by each individual member. And I think that that would probably hold true regardless of what the industry is or how the trade organization supports its members, is that instead of working from a top down with a political agenda for the whole you work from the bottom up to start with the communities and the shared values and the relationships and then develop a shared purpose and a campaign and reach the result that way. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. We love podcasting, but you can tell from the wide range of conversations on ours that they're just one piece of a member journey. And it can be hard to tell how that fits into a member journey sometimes. So we're excited to be participating in the upcoming Member Journey Bootcamp in September. It's an online program that goes across four weeks, just two hours a week, focused on helping you craft and hone your member journey. Check it out at barrett.org slash member journey. That's A-R-R-I-T-T dot org slash member journey. And in what ways does community organizing help associations foster a sense of belonging and commitment among the members, you know, leading into increased loyalty and participation in association activities? I think that's a really good question. And it's something that didn't occur to me until a little bit further down this path. One way that we have been able to build a sense of belonging is that we identified people who had relationships. And of course, CEOs or people who are part of a leadership team naturally have relationships, but we only have so much bandwidth. So what we did was we looked at each member individually and we invited specific people who we knew were connected to their communities to be a part of our community organizing project. And it could be a community health worker. It could be a transportation driver or a nurse, a pharmacist. It looked very different for every group. So we invited individuals who had 
a sense of community or a sense of connection for each member. And then when we were able to all come together and learn together, I think it was really empowering. It was a vote of confidence for the leadership to allow somebody to come and spend three days in an in-depth training and learn about what we were trying to do. And then to be able to come back and be that liaison and have that sense of agency. We also have a member who has been a real early adopter of this concept and they've led the project. And so what they were able to do was bring this diverse group of workforce to come together. And when they are learning how to advocate and they've developed their campaign, it provides a real sense of purpose. So that individuals, like I said, of different wage scales, of different roles and responsibilities, when they learn how to articulate what the values of their community are, it really creates a sense of purpose and belonging within their own organization. And it also helps their community to know who they are and what they're doing. And it shares value that way as well. So when we were able to create that sense of agency, it really developed a sense of hope to say, we get to come to work every day. And this is an awesome purpose. Our mission is important because of X or because of Y. And we're serving patients because of this. And they started to repeat over and over the talking points of the values that they had shared in order to really instill that sense of purpose and belonging within their work and then within their community and then within our association. And so they're the ones who are coming to our meetings or our roundtables or our webinars. And they're the ones who have the responsibility or the accountability of their organization to kind of carry the torch forward. And I think that that's been really beneficial. Yeah. And full disclosure to our listeners, Frank and I were both at this meeting as bystanders, if you will, kind of reporting on what was going on. And from my standpoint, it was it was great to see the engagement level of these folks. Everyone was talking. They were at tables. Everyone was contributing. And it goes beyond just your board. These were members, constituents of your association being involved in the future of community organizing within the group. And that's one reason we wanted to have you on this episode to discuss how this all worked is because we we witnessed it firsthand and the engagement level was so high. So kudos to the association for putting together a really great group of people to then march forward to shout the mission and the message and the goals and the objectives of the association forward. Yeah, thanks. I noticed that too. And I really am grateful for the relationships we were able to develop and for the confidence we were able to instill in the individuals. Oftentimes, advocacy seems really complicated. For example, something that we talk about all the time is this 340B like pharmacy program that gets all nuanced and detailed and it seems really intimidating. But if you start with community and relationships and shared values, it all comes back to that. You know, the way that our communities are served in many respects has to do with complicated drug program. And so they don't have to know the talking points about a regulated drug program. They just need to know that what they're doing is meeting the needs of their community. And if they're able to do it more, they'll meet more needs. And so we were able to simplify it and just bring it back to that relationship because relationships really that sweet spot between transaction and transformation. And so if we need our elected officials to help support our members in funding or regulatory changes, you know, legislative changes, then we need them to understand who their constituents are. And these individuals who came to do the training, 
they know how to invite somebody to come see what they do and how to show off everything that they're doing and where the value is and make that connection. And if everybody can do that, then when it comes to something that is a more complicated legal battle or legislative campaign, then the same individuals that we're talking to to say, remember when you went to visit Melody at her clinic and what you saw and the patients in the waiting room that were getting a benefit, you remember that? Like that's where your return on investment is. That's why you need to keep supporting this. And Melody doesn't have to carry the campaign on like a legislative fix, but she just needs to get her decision makers or her elected officials on site to see and buy into what she's doing. Molly, what would you say are some strategies and tools that are most effective in building and sustaining a strong, engaged community within association? And how can these approaches be adapted to different types of organizations and demographics? Yeah. So there's this concept of community organizing is what the curriculum that we have been working on. It's from Marshall Gans from Harvard University. It's a in-depth curriculum that teaches everything from how to tell your story, how to build a community narrative, how to have an organizing statement and build a campaign with specific goals that can be accomplished. It's not just about building awareness, but it ultimately gets to this is what success will look like. I think that some keys that have made us successful are what we just spoke about, identifying people other than CEOs to be involved. We get an email fatigue or engagement fatigue. And I think that tapping the resources within a workforce to find the passion in the heart has really been helpful because while a CEO might not be able to attend an extra webinar a week, somebody on their team might be able to, and they might have the energy and time to invest in it or just the emotional capacity, which is really helpful. I think that we've tried to just make advocacy really easy. So at the community level, sharing value and building relationships is what we're working towards. And everybody knows how to do that. So keeping it really easy. And then as we work up or advance a campaign, then talking points or how to invite your legislator to your health center or how to make a call to a legislative office, how to make it do a sign on letter, just to make it very simple. But right now, what we've really focused on is just helping to build the relationships with our decision makers. So Molly, what's KPCA's next steps regarding community organizing? So in addition to our concerted effort to make advocacy easy, we have continued to engage those 30 individuals that we had for the three-day retreat on community organizing. And it's a little bit of a distributive leadership approach in that we're developing leaders within each organization and we're giving them tools for how to teach others within their organization how to do what they learned in terms of having the conversations, building the narrative, developing a campaign. Coming up, for example, is Community Health Center Week, which is a great opportunity for fairly qualified health centers to invite their federal delegation to the health center because our funding seems to always come up, you know, this time every year. And so be able to invite them and then for us to be able to provide the talking points, the meeting invitations, the social media approaches, those sorts of things. So we're helping each individual member to develop their own relationships within their communities, and we're continuing to encourage them and provide the resources to do that. And then we have also created a focus group on a specific area. I mentioned the pharmacy program that is integral to what many of our members do and how they have the funding to provide whole patient care. And we have developed a task force of people from all over the state 
involved in the pharmacy versus involved in communications or advocacy or finance. All sorts of individuals who have an interest to participate in developing legislation that we can introduce in our January General Assembly. So that's another campaign that we're really working on that's been well-received to have this Helix approach of individual projects, what you can do at home or at your own community level health center versus what we're doing at the association level and then creating the touch points of how we're kind of progressing along steps and strategies that we learned in our community organizing training. Well, Molly, we really want to thank you for being part of today's discussion. So I, we really appreciate it. But we'd like to put you in the hot seat one last time for the final segment we like to call the Briefings Minute. So we're going to fire off a series of questions just to learn a little bit more about you. So please give us the first answer that comes to mind. Are you ready? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. Love the confidence. Uh, so you're in Kentucky. You're a frequent derby attendee. What does that Kentucky Derby Day look like? That's a good question. I'm actually from Lexington. Louisville is where the Derby is, but we're a little bit more partial to Keeneland, which is here in Lexington um, in October and April. And we love going to the races and dressing up, having a bourbon drink. I would say probably with Derby, we like to watch it friends at a party and rather than head to the track. There's always fun stories when it comes to a restaurant. And as a waitress earlier in your career, do you have any funny stories you can share? Oh my gosh, I've got lots of stories from when my friends and I worked at a little restaurant in Cape Cod, Massachusetts one summer. I think that the manager was pretty excited when he saw us move in and thought that he had his full staff ready from the get-go, but he didn't necessarily have a lot of experience in the restaurant business, so it was a pretty haphazard, maybe learned a little bit too much, kind of like a kitchen confidential type experience where the New England clam chowder was actually Campbell's. Oh, what a reveal. So with two boys, you mentioned there's a lot of sports watching at home. Who are your family's teams and who is your favorite athlete right now? Well, we like the Wildcats, UK, University of Kentucky Wildcats. Right now, my boys are playing baseball and we're watching quite a bit of baseball. So they like the Reds from Cincinnati. And then for some reason, I'm not sure what it is, but they really love the New Orleans Saints. And so we've got lots of uh, memorabilia in their rooms. I let them kind of do what they want in their rooms and mostly saints. Awesome. I'm really excited to hear your answer on this. Now, Molly, if I say early 2000s hip hop, who are the first artists that come to mind? Mm. (laughs) Well, Nelly. Um, Ludacris, am I hitting any of those? My girlfriends, we really love Beyonce. I don't think it's in that genre as much, but we were big Destiny's Child fans. So, you know, that's when I was in college. So it was a really fun time. And we promised Molly we wouldn't make her uh, break off any early 2000s hip hop. So it's a loss to our audience there. Sorry. <laughs> Unless you want to, though. All good. <laughs> so discussions of pickleball come up a lot right now. Were you a player before it became really trendy? And what makes this sport so much fun? Oh my gosh, I love my pickle. During COVID, when we were working from home, I was able to, a couple friends and I just developed a group and we would play a couple times a week. Just a nice thing to do outside and enjoy. And I don't know if I'd ever really had an activity with girlfriends where, you know, you put your phone down and you just chat and you're outside. 
amongst the group. We've got some competitive ones, so it's fun. And then we've kept playing ever since. It's kind of hard to get a game in, but it's been a really great sport. People of all different ages and athletic abilities. Sometimes the people who are the best, like you wouldn't pin on for it when just by looks, but it's been really fun. And my kids like to play it too. We have a league in the summertime. So like I said, just another way to be outside and put your phone down. That's great. Speaking of being outside, uh, we hear you're quite a fan of fly fishing. Where's the most unique place you've done that? Mm, I'm headed to Idaho next week to do it, but I think that the best trip that I had was with my dad. We went to Mongolia to go diamond fishing, which they're huge. They're about as big as you are. <laughs> and you catch them on a dry fly that looks a little bit like a rat. But we were able to, we slept in yurt. We were like up near the Russian border and it was the most beautiful piece of this world. And we, there are lots of um, nomadic people living along the stream. It was just a really unique and special experience to have with my dad. Wow, that sounds awesome. Well, Molly, that's the buzzer. Thanks again for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of Engaging in the Next. Join us each month as we discuss trends that impact what's next in the association world. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you'd like more information about association briefings and how we can help you produce a podcast or unique data-driven newsletter for your association, be sure to visit us online at associationbriefings.com. See you next time.